Hey guys, welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. I'm Harry, and I'll be your host. Last week, we saw the Germans kick off Operation Typhoon, their last attempt to destroy the USSR in 1941. Operation Typhoon began with massive success, but has already run into severe problems. So we'll pick up there with Army Group Center. In the weeks prior, German Panzer forces had sliced through Soviet defenses and established huge pockets at Vyazma and Bryansk, encircling most Soviet forces in the area. The Vyazma pocket, with more troops contained in a small area, had been destroyed by October 14th. Meanwhile, the battle in the Bryansk pocket, which was more sparsely populated and spread over a much larger area, was reaching its zenith. Soviet troops fought ferociously, which ironically earned them both the admiration of German soldiers for their bravery and earnest questions about whether Soviet troops were even human. These questions, in the main, were prompted not by Nazi racial ideology, but by wonderment that a human could endure so much and just keep fighting. However hard they fought, though, the situation for the Soviet troops in the Bryansk pocket continued to degrade. The pocket had been split into two smaller encirclements, one north of and one south of Bryansk. By October 17th, the northern pocket had been liquidated, and the southern one fell on the 18th. Now, I'm going to do some quick analysis of the battles of Vyazma and Bryansk, although I usually save that for the end. There are two different extreme views of the battle, as well as a lot of space in the middle. One extreme sees these battles purely as disasters, while the other extreme argues that the battles to close these pockets occupied huge numbers of German forces, including armored forces, for almost two weeks and were thus integral in later Soviet success at halting Operation Typhoon. Now, I agree with the latter position inasmuch as it's a more nuanced view of things and that it is true. But I feel like this position also understates, severely understates, the scale to which the Osmond and Bryansk were catastrophic. At the beginning of Operation Typhoon, the Soviet forces facing Army Group Center numbered around 1.25 million men. In the course of under three weeks, this figure was reduced to maybe 250,000. 23,000 men escaped from the Bryansk pocket back to Soviet lines, 85,000 did the same from the Vyazma pocket, and an additional 100,000 or so managed to avoid encirclement altogether. Uh, rounding numbers up and accounting for other stragglers, this means that over 1 million men were captured, killed, or wounded too badly to make it out. Probably about 650,000 alone were captured in the major encirclements. This is catastrophe on an unimaginable scale, only rivaled by Kiev, which was just weeks ago. And yes, while the ferocious Soviet resistance within the pocket did occupy German forces for weeks, no reasonable person would disagree that those troops could have done a lot more had they not been encircled. It's not their fault, it's just the fact of being encircled. Meanwhile, the weather was turning bitterly cold. But while snow would fall and ice would form at night, or on particularly cold days, throughout much of October it would melt while the sun was out. This would turn roads from icy sheets into marshes, and many soldiers grew to look more fondly on cold days than warmer ones, though this would soon change. German soldiers lacked winter gear, a fact which is well known and oversimplified. We first have to remember that only a small minority of German commanders even believed the war would last this long, and I have yet to find a major commander with misgivings about the Eastern Front who did not restrain his thoughts to his journal or perhaps in grumbles to his colleagues. 
With victory all but assured before winter, so they thought, the production of winter gear was unnecessary and was kept to a minimum to make room for other more necessary industrial productions. There was some production of winter gear. However, it was completely inadequate for an invasion force of 3 million. But the majority of this scant supply didn't even reach the troops. Just as industrial choices had to be made, so did logistical choices. Commanders opted to prioritize shipments of fuel and ammunition, which would theoretically keep the offensive moving forward, rather than winter clothes. And so, soldiers were instructed to take what they need from Soviet troops and civilians. Very quickly, many Wehrmacht troops found themselves looking like the poster child Red Army soldier, donned in a great coat, fur hat, and standard-issue Soviet boots. Friendly fire incidents became embarrassingly common. The German high command hastily wrote and distributed manuals on how to cope with the Russian winter without the proper clothing. German soldiers, as you might expect, received these bitterly. One such manual advised that an extra pair of socks could be made into gloves by cutting holes into them for the fingers to poke through. One Wehrmacht soldier noted that by this point there was no such thing as an extra pair of anything, especially socks, and that if they still had socks, they had quite enough holes in them already. We can rightly laugh at this, but it has a horribly dark side. Soviet troops were sent marching back to overcrowded prison camps stripped of their underwear and many freeze to death. One German diary account tells of a Russian prisoner who was gradually undressed by his German captors. First his hat, then his shoes, his coat, and so on. Eventually, it reached a point where the young man was executed, and what the writer claimed was mercy. The author explained that had they not executed him there and then, the young man would have frozen to death on the way back to the prison camp. Mercy. With the collapse of the Vyazna pocket on the 14th, German units were allowed to restart their eastward advance. But between the weather and the supply situation, things proved dire, even though organized Soviet resistance was rather lacking. On October 15th, the 11th Panzer Division under the 46th Panzer Corps only managed a 25-kilometer advance despite facing negligible resistance. On the 16th, the fuel situation became so bad for the 11th Panzer that the division commander had to leave behind much of his already severely depleted Panzer Regiment in order to create a fuel reserve for the remainder. This situation, and those like it, played themselves out all over Army Group Center, and was, in my analysis, the primary reason why the German advance in this period was surprisingly slow, although we also have to give credit to well-built-up defenses along the Mosaic Line and a stalwart Soviet defense. Still, Soviet troops slowly, painfully pushed through, capturing Mosaic on the 18th. Despite their setbacks, German morale remained high, both on the battlefield and in high command. Perhaps some of this was out of desperation. They were convincing themselves that the war had to be almost over because the thought of it continuing was too terrible to consider. But in fairness, there were also months of victories to look back on, including those that had wrapped up just days before. And optimism ran to, and continued to run to, a fever pitch among high-level officers. For his part, Halder proposed a massive encirclement operation that would push German forces 150 kilometers east of Moscow, it never occurred to Halder, nor anyone else in the high command, it seems, that the Wehrmacht might not be able to take Moscow at all. Forces in the northern part of Army Group Center had more success, having leapt up to the north beginning on the 13th and 14th of October, seizing the city of Kalinin, now Tver. 
This move severely threatened the Soviets' right flank, and Zhukov responded in earnest. Ivan Konev was sent to manage the situation around Kalinin, and a new front, aptly named the Kalinin Front, was established. Konev was given substantial reinforcements to work with, and was able to establish a strong defense in record time. The strength of the Soviet defense and the weakness of German forces at this late stage meant that ambitious efforts at advancing beyond Kalinin were aborted. Soviet forces even embarrassed German troops from time to time. On October 18th, a single KV tank broke into Klin and rolled around the city unimpeded for hours, blowing up and running over German artillery, supplies, and vehicles. I was unable to figure out whether there weren't any people in that part of the city, any German troops, or whether the Germans simply didn't have anything that could penetrate the KV tank. But either way, it's not a good situation in Klin. It was clear to the Stavka and other informed observers that the battle would soon reach Moscow, or at least very near to it. On October 15th, Stalin ordered that preparations be made to evacuate the Soviet government to the city of Kuibyshev, now Samara, some 2,500 kilometers east of Moscow. Factories were evacuated, and essential government and economic personnel traveled east. This move sparked intense unrest among ordinary Moscovites. The cause of this unrest was not necessarily fear nor an unwillingness to fight. In fact, it was likely the opposite. Muscovites, and many people across the Soviet Union, mostly Russians, had fully committed themselves to the war effort, working in weapons factories, creating defenses, and enduring bombing for months now. The thought that their leaders had abandoned them to the Germans was what sparked such anger. This made it even more meaningful when Stalin made a show of remaining in Moscow, which calmed many in the city, as well as over the rest of the Soviet Union. But there were more pressing matters to attend to in the military sphere. Zhukov knew he had no chance of holding Moscow with the forces he had at his disposal after Vyazma and Bryansk. When he took command of the Western Front, he had perhaps 90,000 men. Hundreds of thousands more were needed. They came from the civilian world, as well as troops newly transferred from the Far East. Just in Moscow alone, Zhukov managed to scrape up six rifle divisions from the civilian population, which is remarkably impressive for a city that had already been thoroughly mobilized in the last four months. These freshly raised rifle divisions were poorly armed and poorly trained, but they were bodies that could be put on the front line, and at this point, that was what the Red Army needed. An additional 100,000 engaged in part-time military training, and 20,000 women trained as nurses. By the end of October, Zhukov's forces had doubled in number, not including a newly raised army which was inserted into his lines. As October 20th rolled around, the German advance had almost completely stopped. On every section of Army Group Center, the Red Army had deployed everything it had. This had at least temporarily stabilized the situation in the central and southern sectors and had almost broken German forces in Kalin. German commanders were hoping for more supplies, and many were hoping against hope that the weather would just clear up, although it showed no signs of doing so. By October 25th, the Wehrmacht had been halted for the better part of a week. On the positive side for the Germans, infantry divisions were beginning to catch up with the Panzer forces on the front, providing a more stable line. But any confidence this might have given them was likely dashed when the Western Front began yet another offensive against the 57th Panzer Corps. This particular offensive threatened the cave-in German positions and was only stabilized with a Herculean German effort. The last major German blows in this episode came from Guderian's 2nd Panzer Army, which was attempting to strike towards Tula, 
This operation had been delayed to the 23rd to bring up supplies, a process which was still incomplete when the 23rd rolled around. However, Guderian, not wanting to allow the Soviets any more time to prepare, decided to attack nonetheless. Facing heavy resistance, Guderian's forces slowly advanced, fighting mud and coal as much as the Red Army. It took until the 25th to advance 30 of the 120-so kilometers to Tula, and having broken the first defensive lines, the advance sped up a bit, and Guderian's panthers pushed forward another 35 kilometers by the 27th. Finally, by the 29th, Guderian's men were just 5 kilometers from Tula. They could see it. They could see it in the distance, and they quickly attempted to seize the city, but Soviet defenses were too strong and German forces thrown back. As the German advance ground to a halt, their commanders increasingly squabbled and concocted ludicrous schemes that would end the war once and for all. Even as Guderian painstakingly pushed forward towards Tula, the OKH was urging Bach to conduct offensives along every sector of Army Group Center with goals hundreds of kilometers to the east. These plans amounted to generals pushing around model soldiers on paper maps, but German forces dutifully attempted to fulfill them. The breaking point, or at least one of the breaking points, came on October 27th. The OKH ordered Guderian's advance to be halted and its forces to be redistributed for an attack towards Voronezh. Bach bitterly protested, believing that regardless of whether it was a good plan or not, they had committed to it and now had to follow through. He was also highly concerned about not mutiny or insurrection, but a severe drop in morale if German forces were made to abandon positions that they had held. So, when the order came to him, he refused to pass it on. Two increasingly direct orders, saying the same thing, came to Bach's HQ, but he refused to budge each time. It was the high command who eventually blinked first, allowing Guderian's advance to continue. The fact that Bach won this standoff and also suffered no formal repercussions for what could reasonably be called insubordination says a lot about the decline in self-confidence and the fragility of the situation at this point. Feudal attempts for breakthroughs ran for a few more days until October 31st. On that day, the OKH finally ordered a general pause in operations until logistical and weather problems had cleared up. Still 70 kilometers from Moscow and with a brutal winter just on the horizon, German forces were halted. In the south, Axis troops were split in two directions. The main group advanced eastward, hoping to take the rich Donbass region. A smaller group struck towards Crimea. The attack towards Crimea was more or less up to German and Romanian infantry. Despite their lack of vehicles, they made quick work of Soviet forces in the area, sweeping south towards the Black Sea. They managed to split Red Army forces on the Crimean Peninsula. Some were pushed eastwards, maintaining a small bridgehead in eastern Crimea. The remainder of the forces were in and around the Black Sea port of Sevastopol. Many of Sevastopol's defenders had only just arrived from Odessa, from one siege to another. German forces established positions near Sevastopol by October 27th, but Sevastopol was a heavily fortified, well-manned, and well-armed city, and German forces were in no position to take it. Moving back to Ukraine proper, the Red Army had little prospect of holding the Donbass. Once the Germans had crossed the Dnieper River, there were a few natural obstacles in their way. The Soviet Southwestern Front, while initially the strongest the USSR could muster, had been brought low by a laundry list of disasters at Brody, at Uman, at Kiev, and the the incident at the Sea of Azov, which we talked about last episode, had claimed over one million prisoners and hundreds of thousands more wounded and dead. What Soviet forces remained put up a ferocious fight, but were gradually pushed back. Much of the fighting in Ukraine this week was focused around the city of Kharkov. 
The city represented both a vital industrial and mining town, and it occupied a major gap between German armies. Wehrmacht forces reached the outskirts of Kharkov on October 20th, and by the 23rd, fighting had reached the city itself. The city was taken by October 24th. The actual battle for Kharkov was, by Eastern Front standards, a rather small-scale affair. It involved roughly two German divisions and just a single Soviet rifle division. Why were these commitments so low? Partially because both sides had so few resources to spare, especially in this region, but also because Kharkov had largely lost its economic importance to the Soviets. The process to evacuate important industrial machinery and personnel had been ongoing for weeks, and it was more or less complete by October 20th. In truth, there was a lot that was valuable in Kharkov that could not be moved. There was no way to move the coal mines, for instance, so the Soviets reluctantly decided to sabotage these. They blew them up, they took the machinery away, and they just did whatever they could to make them as useless as possible to German occupiers. Still, this was, of course, a huge loss. In the north, that is Army Group North, German forces began their offensive on October 16th, by happenstance, this preempted a Soviet offensive that was scheduled for the 20th that hoped to relieve Leningrad. Positioned about halfway between Novgorod and Leningrad, the 39th Panther Corps, which was Army Group North's only remaining armored force at this point, thrust the northeast towards the city of Tikvin, and then hoped to move up to Lake Ladoga, which would completely cut off the city of Leningrad. Facing little resistance, the 39th easily punched the Soviet lines, smashing into the defenses of the 4th Army from the 16th to the 20th of October. From the 21st to the 24th, German forces attempted to fan out, which saw some limited success, but by the 24th, Soviet resistance had basically halted them. Red Army forces then began the counterattack. In light of this pressure, von Lieb met with Hitler on October 26th. Von Lieb requested the Army Group Center support Army Group North by attacking with its left flank. But this left flank, most prominently included Kalin, was under massive pressure itself, and Hitler was strictly focused on Moscow, so von Lieb's request was denied. On the Soviet side, they were reinforcing their armies around Tikvin with everything and anything they could find, and organizing what they hoped would be devastating counterblows. On October 29th, the Stavka ordered the creation of two shock groups, each made up of two divisions. These shock groups would lead an offensive to encircle and destroy German forces advancing on Tikvin. This offensive would begin on October 1st, so we'll have to leave the front for here and pick it up next time. In the air, the Luftwaffe was bearing more and more of the load for Operation Typhoon. It was expected to play an integral role in destroying Leningrad from the air and act as a hammer in Ukraine, and that's to say nothing of its extensive duties in Operation Typhoon. As roads became impassable, it was also increasingly called on to ferry supplies to forward German units, something it was unequipped to do. All of this while still enduring heavy losses and while awful weather would ground it over wide stretches of land for days at a time. More than perhaps any other branch of the military, the Air Force, the Luftwaffe, was most reliant on a small cadre of highly experienced pilots and crews. This elite group counted for a disproportionate number of kills and basic functions. And they also served a vital role in leading units and training new pilots. But by this point, this cadre had been ravaged. Bomber pilots and crews were particularly bad off, as they had increasingly been sent on missions with little to no fighter cover. Dietrich Peltz, one of the most experienced German bomber pilots, spoke out about this. He bluntly said that, quote, almost the entire generation of pre-war trained officers were lost in combat, unquote. 
Dietrich took his criticisms and suggestions to higher-ups, and for this he was transferred from frontline service to get him somewhere where he could cause less trouble. German strength was also eroded by transfers. British naval and air activity in the Mediterranean were threatening to cut off supply to Rommel's Africa Corps, and significant Luftwaffe resources were transferred from the east to counter this. On the Soviet side, they had some growing success in the air, and this was down to a few factors, but that same success was also highly imperfect. The Red Air Force was able to assemble an, an impressive array of aircraft, given their horrendous losses. At the outset of Operation Typhoon, there were 700 Soviet fighters arrayed against 420 German fighters. Nor were all these Soviet fighters outdated models, I-15s, I-16s, etc. Since the war broke out, Soviet factories had shifted production from older to newer designs very rapidly. Moreover, most of the Red Air Force's supply of outdated aircraft have already been destroyed by this point, courtesy of the Luftwaffe. So the supply of modern aircraft was increasing in both relative and absolute terms. These modern Soviet aircraft, specifically the fighters, were not quite the equal of their German equivalents. A lag or a yak was, at this point, a little, well, maybe more than a little, uh, underperforming compared to uh, BF-109, but it at least gave their Soviet pilots a fighting chance, something an I-15 or I-16 couldn't really say. Although the aircraft might have been improved, the quality of Soviet pilots still left a lot to be desired. The pre-war training structures were being replaced, but this created an inevitably chaotic transition. The need to have as many pilots in the air as possible led to short and incomplete training, with performance declining and casualties rising as a result. But the constant action did rapidly create battle-tested pilots. If they survived, the big if, these pilots would form the nucleus of the Red Air Force ongoing. Returning to the events at hand, if you want a one-sentence description, the situation for the Luftwaffe is quite bad, but not as desperate as the army at this point. In international news, the U.S. is creeping ever closer to war. On October 17th, the destroyed USS Kearney was torpedoed by German U-boat U-568 off the coast of Iceland. Eleven U.S. sailors are killed and the ship is damaged. On October 31st, the USS Reuben James was torpedoed by U-552, also off the coast of Iceland. The ship was sunk and over 100 sailors were killed. Relations are also breaking down with Japan. The U.S. and Japan had been engaging in talks to try and lower tensions and maybe find a solution to their disputes, but were having no success. Japan was unwilling to back down from its position in China and Indochina, and the U.S. was unwilling to accept and empower Japan. By this point, the Japanese military was planning to launch pre-organized strikes on American, British, and Dutch targets if negotiations proved unsuccessful. Also, I want to include a note you may find helpful. We've talked a little bit in the past about how badly strained Germany's manpower situation was, and I wanted to give you some examples that would illustrate just how serious the situation is. The Wehrmacht 1941, when you account for casualties and replacements, accounted for some 8.5, maybe as high as 9 million people, almost all men. This figure would account for over 80% of the male population aged 18 to 35. And of course, some men in that age range, though not a whole lot by this point, are exempted for either physical reasons, unfit to serve, or they have important jobs that make them more valuable in the economy than they would be in the military. So 
we're basically digging into the middle-aged population just to maintain the Wehrmacht in its 1941 size, and it has no prospect of being able to downsize unless they defeat the Soviets in Operation Typhoon. In analyzing this episode, we really begin to see the complete breakdown of the Wehrmacht. We've been talking about the awful losses and supply problems they've been having almost since the invasion began, but German troops have largely been able to work around this thanks to the terrible state of the Red Army as well as their own tactical superiority. But now, with the logistic and material situation at a new low, the weather turning bad, and tactical options severely limited, the German advance is floundering. On the other side, the Red Army, and more generally speaking, the Soviet people, have demonstrated unparalleled tenacity and firmness. Not only that, but they've managed to raise division after division practically out of thin air. Where even a few weeks ago it seemed that the German drive towards Moscow was unstoppable, it now appears like the Wehrmacht is a few weeks from collapse. Imagine how that must feel if you're a German soldier. You've been fighting for over four months, won huge victories, and advanced the better part of 1,000 kilometers. You were promised that the enemy was an inferior race who would throw up their hands and surrender in a matter of weeks, maybe a month or two. Instead, they fought ferociously. True, they were clumsy and sometimes inept, but these battles have taken their toll on you. And each time your forces create and demolish a great encirclement, whole new armies spring up in front of you. Even at this point, so deep into the Soviet heartland, just 70 kilometers from Moscow, the civilian population militarizes itself to oppose you, and enemy troops are shipped across a continent to halt your advance so close to your prize. How can they even sustain this? And maybe the better question is, how can you even sustain this? All right, that wraps things up for this week. I appreciate all of you guys for bearing with me throughout the series, and I hope you've been enjoying it. If you want to reach me with questions, suggestions, or anything else, my email is apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. That's apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Otherwise, my name is Harry, and I'll see you guys next time.